I want to take as my text this morning from our first reading from 2 Samuel, beginning in chapter 11. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning at verse 26. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that uh, text uh, on page 309. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and beginning at verse 26, which I'd like to read again just so it's fresh in our mind. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and beginning at verse 26. And there we read, And when the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, and he was dead because David had committed adultery with her, and he killed her husband, Uriah. When the wife of Uriah heard that her, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented for her husband. And when the morning was over, David the king sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan, Nathan the prophet, to David. And he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his bread, his morsel, and drink from his cup, and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or her to prepare food, dinner, for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David the king's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. And thus the Lord, the God of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you, David. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemy Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and, have, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son. And so what you did secretly... I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've titled my talk this morning, A Cover-Up Uncovered. 
a cover-up uncovered. Interestingly enough, with God, you know, there is no such thing as a cover-up. And that's because God knows everything. He knows all of your actions. He knows all of your thoughts. In fact, God says that he is the judge of both. He's the judge of both our thoughts and our actions, our thoughts and the things that we do. As God says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 10, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Or as Jesus said through the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 23, and Jesus said, And all the churches know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart and will give to each of you according to your deeds. And so it was C.S. Lewis who wrote in his book, The Great Divorce, that with God there, there, there are no private affairs. <laughs> And so with God, there is no such thing as a cover-up, and that's because God knows everything. And even if any of us should succeed in cover up, covering up something for a long time, even the whole of our life, the truth is that it will eventually come out. In fact, what did Jesus say? He said it in several places, but I'm quoting from Luke chapter 12 and verse 2. Jesus said, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And still, <laughs> people try to cover things up, things that they don't want anyone to know. And of course, David is a famous example of that. Now, to get to the cover-up, we have to kind of back up a little bit from our text. We have to go a little deeper into, or I should say, maybe up to the front of chapter 11, chapter 11 of Second Samuel. And there we read, at the, as this chapter begins, that it was springtime. As the writer says, uh, it was the time that kings go to battle. But for some reason unmentioned uh, in the text, uh, this particular springtime, David had sent his army off to fight the Ammonites, that was the uh, enemies of Israel on their eastern border. While David himself, the writer says, he decided to stay back at the royal palace in Jerusalem. And as it happened one late afternoon after David had uh, awoken from a nice nap, he decided to take a, a walk along the parapet on the roof of the palace. And the text says that David looked down from the roof, and when he did, he saw a woman bathing. And she was beautiful. And the text says that uh, David made inquiry to find out who this woman was. And the answer came back that that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, a married woman, a woman already spoken for. Now, as it happened, uh, Uriah was away with David's army, risking his life for the king, while the king was having naps in the afternoon in his palace. Uriah was out fighting the Ammonites in the east, and so David sent messengers to go get Bathsheba and to bring her to his palace. And when they did, David, the king, otherwise described in both the Old Testament and the New, a man after God's own heart, took Bathsheba to his bed and had sexual relations with her. And when he was finished with her, 
He sent her back home. Now, why did David do that? He did it because he could. He did it because he was king. He had the power to do it. And because he was king, who can say no to the king? Some week later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was with child, she sent a message to David saying, I'm pregnant. And so as the text says, David sent word to his field commander, Joab, who was out on the eastern front fighting the Ammonites and leading the battle. And the message that he sent to Joab, his field commander said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And so Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, returned to Jerusalem, to the king's palace, and he was in Jerusalem for three days. And so we read in 2 Samuel 11 and beginning at verse 7, that when Uriah arrived, David asked him, well, uh, 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 how's, how's Joab? <laughs> how's he doing? And how are the troops? How are the people? How are they doing? How's the war going? And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house. <laughs> Wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, but, verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, the king, and did not go down to his house. And when it was told to David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to, to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark, that is the ark of the covenant, and, and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and temporary dwellings out in the camp nearby the battlefields. And my lord Joab, the field commander, and the servants of my lord, you, the king, are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. <laughs> what an example to the king who seems to have lost his moral way. And the text says that David tried this twice in an attempt to get Uriah to go home and to sleep with his wife Bathsheba, that the child that she had conceived because of him, the child that was conceived and growing in her womb, would appear to be Uriah's and not his own. In fact, the first night it didn't work. And so the king takes another shot at it the second night. Uriah's in Jerusalem, David wines and dines him and, and gave him so much wine to get him drunk. Have another, Uriah. Oh, no, you can't say no to the king. Have another. Thinking that if he got him drunk, he could weaken Uriah's resolve and he would go home, <laughs> down to his house and be with his wife. But he didn't. And so now, in an even more desperate attempt to effect a cover-up, David sets out to have Uriah killed. He commits adultery with his wife, and now he'll add to that murder. 
And so we read in 2 Samuel 11 and beginning at verse 14, And then in the morning after Uriah's second night with the king in Jerusalem, David wrote a letter to Joab, his field commander, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He's delivering his death warrant by his own hand out to where Israel is fighting the Ammonites. And in the letter the king wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And who can say no to the king? (laughs) That's what Joab did. And Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was killed. Which brings us then to this morning's text and the completion of the cover-up. 2 Samuel 11 and beginning at verse 26. And when Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David, the king, sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And then the text continues in verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. He had been watching all along. He knows all the details, which leads to the second part of our story, namely the the cover-up uncovered. Indeed, the text says, beginning at verse uh, one of chapter 12, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan, God's prophet. And the text says that David, Nathan came to David. He told him this, this story, this parable. David, and his, you can imagine his emotional, the great writer, the singer of the Psalms. His emotional disposition, he He gets into it so that he starts to think that what he's being told is not just a parable, but something that's really happening. (laughs) Nathan says there were two men in a certain city, and one of them was rich and the other poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and in with his children. It used to eat his bread and, and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a, a daughter to him. If you've ever had an animal in the house that became like a family member, that's what's happening here. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock, of which he had many, or from the herd to prepare for the guests, because this was the ancient rites of hospitality. A traveler comes and you take care of the traveler. But he was not willing to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him, but instead he went over and he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and made a meal of it for the man who had come to him. In verse 5 it says, and, and David, David's anger was greatly kindled. He, he became enraged 
against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, it's like a solemn oath. What David is saying here is not just uh, this is something that should be done. This is something that I'll take care of. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. He took that man's lamb. He's going to give him four more. And then we're going to kill him. Because he did this thing and he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you're the man. You're the man. You did this. David was the rich man with many sheep. He had many wives. What do you think Solomon? Solomon had 300 wives and 1,000 concubines. Or was it 300 wives and and, and 7,000 concubines? Whenever he would see one, he said, Babe, you know, you're one in a thousand. Where do you think he got that? In fact, Deuteronomy 17 and verse 17 says, The kings of Israel shall not multiply wives. But David did and taught Solomon, his son, how to do it, who had taken it to a completely different level. David was the rich man with many sheep. He had many wives. David was the rich man who had no pity. He stole Uriah's one and only because he could, because he was king. David was the man who stole and killed selfishly, thoughtlessly, without mercy or compassion. David was the man. But then Nathan wasn't finished. He continues. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And listen to the Lord pleading with David. I anointed you king over Israel. The first king was a a dud. He didn't walk with me. And I took you from following the sheep, the youngest of all your brothers. And I made you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Indeed, Saul had been, had been after David for years. A matter of life and death, David had to run from one place to the next to keep from being killed by Saul. But God protected him every time and delivered him. And God blessed David. Notice verse 8. And I gave you your master's house, that is his kingdom, and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, And if that were too little, I would have added more. And therefore, why have you despised my word? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Indeed, the word of the Lord says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt do no murder. But you, Nathan says, and God speaking through him, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites and now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And the sword never did leave David's house. Indeed, David's son Absalom killed his brother Amnon for raping their sister. 
Absalom himself was killed while he was leading a coup against his father David. Even after David himself had died, David's son Adonijah was killed because he had become a threat to the stability of the kingdom of David's son Solomon. Death and dysfunction of the highest order. And who modeled it? The king who abused his power. And Nathan continues, and thus the Lord says, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor or to someone close to you. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun in broad daylight. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel for everyone to see before the sun. And that's exactly what David's son Absalom did. In the midst of the coup, David had to leave the city. And Absalom raped David's wives one by one on the roof of the palace. That's a pretty notorious roof. And when Nathan had finally finished delivering God's message, David responded. And how did he respond? Did he say to Nathan, who do you think you are bringing false accusations against your king? I'm David, the Lord's anointed. I'm king. Or did Nathan... Or I should say, did, did David throw Nathan into prison as Herod would do so many years later to John the Baptist because John had been daring enough to accuse Herod of sinful behavior? Did David send Nathan off to be executed for his insolence? No. David agreed with the prophet. And confessed. He heard the charges that God had brought against him and he pleaded guilty as charged. In fact, notice verse 13 And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the David we otherwise know. God speaks. And David responds. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Under Mosaic law, both of the things that he did, committing adultery and committing murder, were capital offenses. And the Lord says, I forgive you. We read in 1 John 1 and Beginning at verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. <laughs> this isn't just about David. Did you think it was just about David? In fact, just, as I read things like that, I find it remarkable that the Bible unfolds all of this. In a myth or a legend, David wouldn't do things that were contrary to the overall message of the book. But this book speaks truth. 
And the truth is, is that this man who we otherwise know as the man after God's own heart blew it royally. It's amazing. What is the name of the Messiah? The title of the Messiah? The son of who? David. How can that be? Because our God is that kind of God. When he appeared to Moses, you remember in Exodus, in the burning bush out in, the, out in Midian, out in the desert, on the Sinai. <laughs> and God called him to go back to, to, to Egypt and be the deliverer, to be a tool in God's hands to deliver his people Israel out of slavery. Moses said, and, and whom shall I say is your, your name? And he said, tell them that I am, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of these, I am the God of these people. What people? Abraham means father of many. Isaac means laughter because when God said, I'm going to allow you to have a child, Sarah, the mother, laughed and said, how can I have a child? I'm too old for that. And so they named the child laughter. And Jacob means usurper. Jacob means the guy you cannot trust. <laughs> when he's around, watch your stuff. And God says, I'm that God. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Messiah I'm sending is the son of David. If we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so David confessed, and God forgave. Indeed, God was merciful to David, notwithstanding the series of tragic events that were to follow because of the terrible things that David had done. And that's how it works. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness, but there's still consequences. People's lives are still affected. And sometimes the sins that we have done, that, that for, for which God forgives us, other people aren't so forgiving. <laughs> and they may be affected by what we have done for years and perhaps even the whole of their life. And even if we should be successful, and we just choose not to confess, but be successful in managing a cover-up, which is, generally speaking, the, 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 the natural reaction to appear to other people to be something other than we are. You know what? You still know what you've done. <laughs> and God knows and even if it's you and God who knows, you are that person who not only has done something wrong, but hides it and pretends to be something else. 
And so you know and God knows, and in the end, whether that should come later or sooner, everyone will know. <laughs> what did Jesus say? Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden, that will not be known. And so I wonder, what are you planning to do with your secret sins? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe the one that God has been talking to you about. Will you confess? <laughs> or will you cover up? It's hard not to think of that famous adage from the recovery community. We're only as sick as the secrets we keep. <laughs> but I guess it's easier being sick than being free if to be free, I have to confess. By the way, I know what that's like. <laughs> I know what that's like. Can you imagine? You think you have moral pressure? <laughs> oh, first of all, I have greater moral pressure and here's something you probably never thought of. I'm a sinner too. So if anyone is uh, tempted to cover up and pretend to be something that I'm not, it would be me. And I know what it's like to do that. And I'm also, I also know what it's like to confess and to become, become free. In fact, as you, as, you, as, you build, as you create a habit of confession... It becomes more and more liberating. You don't have to confess to everybody all the time, but you confess to God, and it's a good idea to confess to other people too, especially the ones that you may be hurting. <laughs> to say, I'm sorry, that wasn't wrong, you deserve better than that. And uh, you don't have to forgive me, but I just wanted to let you know that I recognize that that just won't do, and I'm going to be seeking to do better. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteous, unrighteousness. A cover-up <laughs> uncovered. Let us pray. It's easy, Lord, and we're tempted to hide. I suppose, Lord, because it's easier to, to hide things away than to be honest and maybe deal with them. The, 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 the sorry, weak end of all of that, Lord, is that those things aren't good for us or for anyone else, and they make, make us miserable. <laughs> it's much more fun to be free. It's much more fun to be honest. It's much more fun to be true and trustworthy with our lives and with other people, to be free, to confess, to be what you see is what you get. And to think that there's, that your mercy is unbounded and that there's no want of grace, that where sin abounds, as Paul put it, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That there's really nothing to fear, as Roosevelt said, but fear itself. And so as we're thinking about our own faults, things that maybe we've done in the past, 
that we've never really dealt with or things that maybe we're doing right now, something that we do on a regular basis that we know isn't good or right. It's not helpful to us or helpful to anyone, and yet we know about it and so do you. For us just to say, Lord, I see it the way you see it, and I'm going to take these steps with your help, Lord, to deal with this and move on that your glory might be on display in my life as you forgive and empower me to walk ever closer with you and your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things, Lord, in his name. Amen.